This is the Men's Group Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Gala. Guys want to overcome challenges and improve parts of their lives for themselves and for their loved ones. But guys don't have access to supportive conversations or healthy male role models. So we interview leading men who have overcome their challenges in healthy ways so that guys can learn healthy ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. Most of what we talk about is just everyday nuts and bolts guy stuff. So if you benefit from these conversations, you can check out our free self-improvement community or our free online men's groups over at mensgroup.com. Now, let's talk about some guy stuff. Today on the Men's Group Podcast, we have Dr. Walter Machuchuk. I love what Dr. Walter's doing because he is a highly respected clinical psychologist that helps a lot of men through his private practice. But what made me want to bring him on the show is that he has deep knowledge in Stoic philosophy and also a really healthy sense of humor around this self-improvement stuff. I love how he explains the common challenges that men face and what the solutions are for overcoming them. I find the way he describes things is really interesting and funny. And so in this episode, we'll cover a few big topics. Number one, how to best recover from a breakup or divorce or infidelity. How to think about adversity especially when going through something like a divorce or a breakup and why it's so important to think about adversity differently, to look forward to adversity. And number three, why Stoic philosophy is so useful in situations like a breakup or divorce. Now, a little on Dr. Walter's background. He's a clinical psychologist that does a lot of work with men at the University of Philadelphia. He teaches master's level counseling at New York University. He studied under two cognitive behavioral therapy legends, Dr. Aaron Beck and Dr. Albert Ellis. And Dr. Walter specializes in REBT therapy, which is popular with men. The REBT stands for Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. It's an approach that helps you identify irrational beliefs and negative thought patterns that may lead to emotional or behavioral issues. And in other words, he helps you figure out limiting beliefs and negative thoughts that may be causing you suffering. Now, Let's get into it with Dr. Walter. And if you like this conversation and want to be around more of these kinds of conversations, you can find a lot more over at mensgroup.com or subscribe to this podcast. Hey, Dr. Walter, excited to have you here today, man. And uh, I'm looking forward to having a chat with uh, um, you know, a clinical psych- psychologist who's, who has a good sense of humor and who has a lot of experience working with men. So That's right. Yeah. I'm happy to be here today. Thank you. Yeah. And the first topic I'd love to get into, it's one of the most common topics in men's group. I'd say half of our community is guys going through some kind of a breakup or divorce or dealing with infidelity, a lot of relationships ending. And so I'd love to start there. I know you have a lot of experience teaching uh, uh, or consulting, uh, counseling uh, your clients around that, your patients around that. I'd love to hear you know, um, your experience with that, but more importantly, how, how they can think about that kind of adversity, how they can survive the rejection um, and ultimately recover in a healthy way from a breakup. Yeah. Well, the thing is this, that one of the ideas that I teach men and women, but we're just going to limit our conversation to men is that you can't change people. You can't control them and you can't change them. But the one person you can change is yourself. So when you break up, right, let's assume um, the, the man is still interested in the relationship, but the other party, the woman or a man for that matter, uh, is no longer interested in the relationship. So in essence, um, let's say John has been jilted or rejected and, um, or, or, 
yeah. or cheated on, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that I think you have to come to terms with is what you can change and what you can't. So John can change himself and how he reacts to that. He can't change the other party. He can't either uh, make them go back in time and not have cheated on them. He can't um, force them to love him. What he can do is have a healthy reaction to what's happened and what may happen in the future, which is that the relationship ends and they then have to live happily. He has to live happily without his um, beloved. And so um, the first idea I teach people is to understand that sadness is a healthy negative emotion, that when you have something and you lose it, that's valuable to you, you have a choice between despair, depression, and hopelessness, which I would consider to be unhealthy emotional reactions, or healthy, a healthy emotional reaction like sadness. And the difference is in not just the feeling, but also in how you react. So for example, if you're drinking heavily, if you're escaping, um, let's say you, um, you go into other relationships quickly just for sex to distract you, that very, or to prove to the other party that you could quickly get into another relationship, um, you know, that you don't need them, that kind of reaction in many ways is, is self-defeating. And so I'm gonna to try to help people adopt attitudes that are going to help have help them to have a healthy negative emotion like sadness, or concern, or disappointment, and then with that um, healthy negative emotion, for them to go and change whatever it is in the external world that they can change, either to um, find themselves a new person to uh, uh, enjoy life with, or to um, just accept that for the time being they're going to be flying solo and that they don't have to be miserable. They can be appropriately sad, and they don't have to be um, destroying themselves while they transition into the next chapter of their life. And you do this by showing people how, how important their attitudes are. Our attitudes will largely uh, contribute to our emotional and behavioral reactions. So the stimulus, the rejection, is only um, a component of, of the upset. It's an opportunity to get upset, but then the premise that I'm operating on and teaching people is that we largely make ourselves upset and we could choose to have a healthy negative emotion. And this idea dates, dates back 2,000 years to the Stoics. Yeah, which is a philosophy that guys love in men's group, the Stoic philosophers and the modern day interpretations of it from Ryan Holiday in his books. Um, yeah. So can you give a, can you give like a nuts and bolts feet on the ground example of a guy who's choosing to make himself feel poorly, uh, after a breakup, like he, he's creating his own suffering? Yes. And first of all, that guy probably doesn't know that, right? Yeah. That many times they'll, uh, people will say, you know, what's making you so upset, John? And John will say, well, it's the fact that, um, you know, my, my girlfriend won't see me anymore or we broke up or she cheated on me. So, if you consider the, that um, adversity, let's assign it to letter A, and most people, and assign our emotional and behavioral reaction to adversity, the letter C, most people will say A causes C, you know, the breakup made me depressed. And people 
don't come to what the Stoic philosopher said was that, you know, events don't determine our, our emotional reactions, but that we largely make ourselves up. People are disturbed not by things, but by their views of them. So said Epictetus. He also said you can't be a victim of another. You can only be a victim of yourself. And people don't understand how they victimize themselves by holding rigid and extreme attitudes. So about adversity. And so, for example, I try to get them to go from the AC model and say, you know, the breakup made me depressed to, no, the breakup occurred and then I'm depressing myself about it. When in fact, um, I could be sad if I knew how to do that. And then I show people how to transform their feelings of depression and their self-defeating behavior once they acknowledge it into healthy feelings of sadness. Um, and doing that through looking at some of the attitudes they might hold that would make them depressed. So, for example, they might say, I absolutely have to have um, uh, Susan's love. I absolutely have to have Susan's love. Or um, I'm lesser of a person because Susan cheated on me. So, um, or they might say, you know, um, <sighs> I probably could find somebody like her, but it's going to take a certain period of time. And, and it's just too hard to go through the uh, process of dating other people until I find another uh, woman who I can uh, get along with and be happy with. And so I first try to show people that we upset ourselves. And then, too, I try to help them see the attitudes they hold that they use to make themselves depressed about their particular adversity. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I've I've seen this um, this theme or this topic come up over and over again in all sorts of courses I've done, books I've read. It's like that this this and then of course the Stoic philosophy is a big proponent of this idea that we we create our own suffering. And Viktor Frankl said, between the stimulus and the response is the the moment we get to choose who we're going choose who we're going to be. Right, you know? that's exactly right. And yeah. so we victimize ourselves. I think it was the Buddha, the the Buddhist, who also said things like, "Pain in life is inevitable, but suffering's optional." And so the sadness of a breakup that's or a relationship that either ran its course or came crashing to an end because of infidelity. Um, that sadness is inevitable, but the um, suffering is optional. And that's where I, I try to show people how to not victimize themselves, how to adopt healthy attitudes towards the uh, adversity that they're facing. Yeah, and I'd love to circle back on that topic, and particularly adopting healthy attitudes toward adversity in general, because I think that could serve everybody listening. Just quickly, a follow-up question on what you just said. Where is the line? Like, you said there's, you know, there's a healthy response there, which is normal after a breakup to be feeling sad, to be mourning the person. But then there's the suffering we're creating on ourselves. I've noticed a lot of guys ask this question, like, where is that line where, you know, letting myself feel the experience and mourn the breakup versus I'm creating my own suffering. How would you define that? Well, I would define it in a couple different ways. Um, you have to understand that um, emotions, behaviors, and thinking are really the same thing, but they're different um, sides of the same coin. So when you wanna examine if you're experiencing an unhealthy negative emotion or suffering, the way we're talking about it, one of the best ways is to look at your behavior. If your behavior has elements of, is self-defeating, 
then I would argue that it's an unhealthy negative emotion. So what would a self-defeating negative emotion look like? It would uh, behavior look like it might be a person who stalks their uh, their ex um, and and continues to um, um, track them into the point where they're not in, uh, making themselves, they're not ingratiating themselves to the other party. They're actually now becoming um, a problem for the other party. So that would be an example of self-defeating behavior. Drinking, I think, would be a, another behavior that would go along with that. And both the unhealthy negative emotion and the healthy negative emotion have a cognitive component that overlaps, which is an acknowledgement that reality isn't the way they want it to be. That's the healthy part. I wish I still had this relationship with Susan, right? But then where they differ is that the cognitive component of the unhealthy um, reaction, the suffering reaction is, I wish I still had a relationship with Susan and I absolutely have to have that uh, relationship with her. I can't bear to face life without her. I'll never be happy. It's awful, terrible. The end of the world that we've broken up or I'm a loser. I'm a failure because this relation, I got jilted yet again. Where the healthy emotional reaction goes quite differently. It, it, the cognitive side of the coin is I wish the reality hadn't occurred that we broke up, but sadly it has. And I acknowledge that. But it doesn't mean there's nothing that says that a relationship absolutely has to last forever. That, um, it is something that is dynamic and, and in a state of flux. And um, I wish it, this relationship were continuing, but it, it, it doesn't appear that like it's going to. And it's certainly bad that it's not continuing, but it's, it, there's a difference between bad and the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's just very bad. And as time goes on, the badness of it will will wane to to a large extent, but it may it always be there in a in a small way. Um, and I can bear the uh, terrible the the difficult emotional experience I'm going through right now. It's not unbearable, and I'm willing to bear it because I don't really have a choice. So I'm going to think about my internal experience differently. I'm not going to say I have to escape it. I'm going to acknowledge it and say I you know. I really don't feel good right now, but this is what happens after you, it's the price of love. It's the price of intimacy. You feel, you have feelings of hurt. Um, buy the ticket, take the, take the ride, eh? Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Buy the ticket, take the ride. And you could either accept that or say it shouldn't be the case. It absolutely shouldn't be the case that this has happened to me. And then lastly, you can, which is probably the most pernicious thing you could do is to down yourself and say, well, I'm a failure because either I misbehaved in the relationship and I didn't appreciate what I had while I had it, or I did everything I could have and um, it wasn't good enough. I didn't have what it took to keep this relationship going. Ergo, I'm deficient as a person. Rather than saying no, the relationship ended and maybe certain traits of mine contributed to that or characteristics contributed to that, but it doesn't define me as a loser. That's an arbitrary definition. I'm a person, a fallible human, whose relationship 
ran its course, and now I'm going to accept that rather than reject it. So there's the, the other difference is when you have these absolute rigid attitudes, like I have to have this person in my life, there's no room for acceptance. Whereas when you have um, a, a flexible attitude, like I really wish that this relationship were still alive and, and, and going, but sadly it's run its course and it doesn't have to exist forever, then you can have some degree of acceptance, which allows you to move on in life. Yeah, acceptance is such a term that a lot of guys uh, hear, but they don't actually know what it feels like. So like, um, yeah, I like how you talk about acceptance. And and um, for me, how I've gotten there is, is, is for me, that defining line of like, am I creating something here or not is what is the fact of the situation versus what is the story that I'm creating around the situation? And so if I go through a breakup, it's like, okay, the fact is that I'm, I'm missing this person and that's that that is what it is and that's going to hurt for a while but then any story outside of that oh that which means that i'm not good enough means that i am not lovable means that i need to rush out and find somebody else then that's that's where i start to get suspicious and raise my eyebrow and go okay i'm creating some suffering here with this story does that sound accurate that sounds about right yes you're doing you're doing the abc model but you're not assigning um the letters to what you're doing so for example what you call the fact is either the adversity that the relationship broke up or your reaction to it, the emotional pain that you feel, the hurt or the depression or the anger, right? And then the story is the cognitions or the attitudes that you hold and make up about about the reality that, about the facts. So like, for example, I absolutely have to have um, this relationship in my life or life is not worth living. I should just kill myself or, um, I can't, um, I can't have any happiness without this relationship. So that's the story or I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm not good enough because I, the relationship ran its course. So that's the story. So I think you're doing the same thing. You're just not a assigning one thing about rationally motivated behavior therapy or, or what's called REBT the type of therapy I do is we're very precise in our language and we make distinctions and we start with the ABC model so that rather than you talk about fact and and the narrative the story which is not which is fine I mean if the person understands what you're talking about that's great but I think when you talk about ABC it makes it a little bit clearer in some instances I love the ABC model. That makes so much sense to me. I love that. I love that heuristic, that, that framework. That's fantastic. Um, the other thing that's really fantastic is the clear definition between healthy and unhealthy negative emotions. I think that, um, um, th- that the, there are eight basic healthy emotions, eight basic unhealthy emotions, and that gives people a language uh, which then they can use to express themselves. Could you list some of those healthy emotions, negative emotions versus unhealthy emotions? Sure, I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to. So first, the easiest one to make a distinction is anxiety and concern. So for example, when we have anxiety or worry, we uh, might avoid, we might medicate ourselves, we might procrastinate, whereas when we have concern, we plot and scheme and then take action to change what we can change. Um, another opposite pairs is the emotion of hurt and disappointment. So hurt 
is the emotion that says, I've been treated poorly, I've been betrayed, I don't really deserve this, and um, you absolutely must not have done this, you're a, you're a, a bad person, um, and, and then the behavior that goes with hurt is sulking. You sulk, you wait, you non-verbally convey to the other person that you want them to uh, make amends to you rather so than... It's victim-oriented, yeah. Yeah. Right. And then the alternative, the healthy alternative would be disappointment where you acknowledge that you've been mistreated and you acknowledge you might even assert yourself around the mistreatment. Um, but you don't uh, you do that um, in, a, in a in an appropriate way rather than sulking, which is just vague communication. Um, so then another two uh, another distinction would be between the emotions of depression, feelings of depression and, in, and sadness. So, for example, depression has to do with a loss or a failure or some sort of undeserved burden. And you might say, you know, I don't deserve this. It shouldn't be this way for me. Or I um, don't deserve this. It shouldn't be for me. But given that it's happened, I'm lesser as a person. Where with sadness, you acknowledge the loss or the failure or the deprivation, but you don't jump to and it shouldn't exist. You have a certain resilient mindset that allows you to accommodate reality, to acknowledge the loss and not to down yourself in total or down life in total. You can acknowledge that life's part of life is shitty, but not the whole of life. Um, guilt and remorse are two, um, are two of the eight emotions where guilt here, the theme has to do with um, violating some sort of moral code or ethical code. But with guilt, it's a rigid attitude like, I absolutely shouldn't have done what I did. I shouldn't have broken this rule. I shouldn't have cheated on my wife. And I'm a totally bad person. That, um, and where remorse, you acknowledge that you did something that broke a moral code or a vow or something like that. You don't deny it. But you acknowledge your behavior rather than condemning yourself. So you're remorseful about your bad behavior, but you're not, um, you're putting it in the proper context. It's one behavior in the, amongst a whole, um, a whole um, person. And you do many things, some of which are good and some of which are bad, and you're remorseful about the bad behavior, but you're not going to condemn yourself about it. Jealousy. Um, now, the problem with, um, well, shame, let's, let's first talk about shame and disappointment. So shame has to do, again, with, you know, um, I, 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 I publicly screwed up. And because I publicly screwed up, I'm lesser of a person. Whereas with disappointment, it's like I didn't do so well on uh, Sean Gala's um, podcast today, and I I wasn't on, I didn't bring my A game, yeah. and that's unfortunate. But I'm disappointed with my performance. But I'm not a bad person. I'm not lesser of a person, and I don't have to um, be sh hang my head in shame and hide hide from sight. Um, so shame and disappointment are are very uh, common emotions that that I talk to people about. Yeah. So 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 disappointment and disappointment and guilt would be more like, oh that I didn't uh, that didn't go very well. 
um, you know, shame is like, I'm not doing well or I'm not good. Yes, yes. And no, guilt would be, I, I did something and broke a moral code. Okay. And shame would be, I failed to live up to a sta- um, some sort of standard, personal I standard am. that I have. Yeah. It's like creating um, a story about you based on the event. The, yeah, and yeah. it's a public pratfall. Hmm, interesting. Um, and then hurt and sorrow. So, for example, I could say, uh, you know, I've been mistreated and, and you're, you're an absolutely bad person. I don't deserve to be treated that way. Or I could have a certain amount of sadness in how I've been treated without going to the point and saying um, you're a bad person. Now, jealousy is a very interesting emotion and it can be very uh, self-defeating and present in relationships with men. I've treated a lot of men with unhealthy jealousy. Um, the problem with jealousy is we don't have a good word for the healthy variety. So one hmm. of the things that I do is to make a distinction between healthy jealousy and unhealthy jealousy. So when you have unhealthy jealousy, what do you do? You monitor your beloved. You try to control them. You try to restrict who might have access to them. Yeah. All the kinds of things that women love. <laughs> or yeah, even yeah. men who are in uh, anybody, relationships anybody with other loves. men, right? Yeah. Uh, Top it's list just of what you want in a relationship, right? <laughs> exactly. Someone who controls me, someone who restricts who I can uh, be with, who monitors my uh, communications, um, and and doesn't have any good reason to be doing none of any of this. Now, with healthy jealousy, healthy jealousy it brings your A game to the relationship. It 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 is um um. Uh, an emotion that's a little bit like concern insofar as you acknowledge that you uh, value this relationship, you want it to continue. But for one, with healthy jealousy, you don't see threats that don't exist. Um, What happens with emotions, not only are they the reaction to something that has occurred, but once we are in an emotional state, we then get, we can be blinded by our emotions or biased. We can engage in biased future thinking. So with unhealthy jealousy, um, you may see threats that don't exist. Whereas with a healthy jealousy, you won't see threats that don't exist. And um, you won't feel the um, urge to monitor or control your beloved. But in fact, you'll have trust. Um, with an acknowledgement that, you know, people are human and that there are other people out there who may want to get close to your beloved um, and that you're going to um, make it hard for them to drift because you're bringing your A-game to the relationship. So that's healthy jealousy. And then there's unhealthy and healthy envy. So envy is another word, emotion that, that we don't have a good, healthy, unhealthy version for. So in envy, you um, prize something that someone else has. In unhealthy envy, you believe you should have it and they shouldn't have it. And um, you may then attempt to do things to um, help them to uh, lose whatever it is that they have. Or you may um, seek uh, allies in, in an effort to undermine their success. 
Where with healthy envy, it's a very good emotion insofar as you can learn from people. So, for example, mentors, um, uh, people you, you see as your mentors, if you have healthy envy for their success, you'll be open to their feedback. You'll model what they do. Um, you'll um, you'll um, just take steps to learn from people, whether they're older than you, younger than you, different than you. So healthy envy is a very um, useful emotion. And I think the last one that I uh, need to touch on is anger, which is that. Yeah, which I want to ask you another, about. Yeah. Another, another emotion um, where we don't really have healthy, good words. So Tied to jealousy, right? I, I was going to say the jealousy in, in particular, the negative jealousy is like quite uh, rooted in anger, it seems. Well, actually, what I try to do is make a distinction between jealousy and anger. Right. So with jealousy, you have a situation where you um, are trying to control, um, you feel threatened in, uh, by, by um, some reality, and then you try to um, control the other individual or control other people from accessing um, whereas with anger, it's a different emotion. So one context that you have anger in is where you're frustrated. You're sitting in traffic and you have a goal to get to. Um, you have concert tickets and something out of the ordinary happens um, and you can't get there on time and you are just livid in anger because you're blocked in the pursuit of a particular goal. But anger can also happen in another instance where you infer that someone's transgressing rules that you have, and you then get very angry about their behavior and the transgression. So, for example, you might— The overstepping might, of the boundary, the overstepping of your boundaries right. kind of thing. Yeah, okay, yeah. Right. So you might anger yourself um, when— um, when um, you're um, when someone else um, well like like if somebody destroys your property you're going to get angry because you may have a rule like you know people should not um, absolutely shouldn't um, damage my property um, another rule you might ha get is is that people shouldn't cut in line in front of me. Um, they shouldn't litter. They absolutely should not litter. So these are rules that people have, personal rules. Um, and then the other way you can get angry is when your ego is threatened. So people will, um, particularly men, will have a, a rule that says something like, you have to respect me. And, 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 and then, you know, men will sometimes kill each other, um, literally, um, because they perceive that they haven't been adequately respected and they have to defend their honor. So there's a, a threat to your um, self-esteem and, and the individual who has unhealthy anger will then try to even the score um, in order to um, protect their honor, whereas in healthy um, anger, you might um, leave the bar and not... Um, I always tell a story once. Um, I was uh, 35 years ago. I was in a bar sitting on a jukebox, um, and I was... Um, You're dating yourself with the jukebox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. It was happy hour. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was sitting on this uh, jukebox, and uh, it was a, a week before I defended my, uh, my doctoral thesis, and there was this guy going around pilfering beer from people's pitchers. And when he came up to my picture, I grabbed his wrist and I said, that's not yours. So first of all, 
that first behavior was an example of unhealthy anger because the guy had violated a rule of mine. And I gave into the impulse to say people absolutely shouldn't steal other people's beer and, and, and maybe I mixed my ego up in it. Like, you know, he should see that it's mine and I have to now point out to him that it's not his and get him to kind of... Um, so this big guy, a hu- it was a huge man, huge man. He looked down the end of his arm at me and spit in my face. Oh, no. Oh, and no. so I had, I had a millisecond or two to process what was going on, and I um, knew that barroom fights are not good ideas, particularly when you have a dissertation thesis um, uh, meeting in a week's time. So if I had thrown <laughs> a punch, time to come in with a black eye, yeah. Well, worse than that, if I had gotten a concussion, I, I might not be able to put two sentences together. And so I took my glasses off, I um, wiped them on my uh, pants, and I left the bar. I, and I never believed at the time that I um, would have such a great story to make this distinction between healthy and unhealthy anger. So initially, I had engaged in unhealthy anger by, I should have just said, you know, this is stupid. A $3 pitcher of beer, and I'm going to get in a, you know, correct this guy. That guy's clearly got his own stuff going on. He's clearly upset about whatever is going on in his life. Just let him have the pitcher of beer kind of thing. Avoid the conflict. Yeah, he's yeah. a bully. He's a bit, yeah. you know, this is crazy. And for the record, like guys that know how to really fight, like Jocko Willink and these authority figures that are like Navy SEALs and stuff, they, they suggest to do the same thing. They, they say avoid the confrontation at all costs. It's never worth it. Except in the case of physical defense, if you're assaulted. So I was jumped once by four kids and I had to fight like hell to protect myself. So the only time I teach men that violence or some sort of retaliatory action is, is, is indicated is when you're physically assaulted. That's great. And then it has to be commensurate with the assault. So somebody jumps you and they start running, you run after them. Well, you might run after them a little bit to make sure that they keep running, but then you stop at some point as opposed to catch them and kill them. That would be a bit over the top and then you're going to get prosecuted probably. Uh, yeah. So that's a great distinction with the anger. Cause that's something that I see a lot after guys in breakups, they're angry about it. Also, another thing I've observed is that a lot of guys don't invest in their community and their friends. And so then they put all their intimate needs into their romantic partner. And then when that comes to an end, that makes the situation 10 times, 100 times more difficult because they have no healthy support pillar. So, yeah, that's something you've observed as well. Yes. And there's another way that happens, too, which is where guys put so much um, of their interest into their careers that they kind of slowly lose friendships over time. So it's either they put all their eggs in the relationship basket or all their eggs in the career basket. And then then when they um, need, could profit from some support, they don't have it to available to them. Yeah, I'd say most of the guys that end up in our men's groups are like that to some degree, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's and easy I, to do. <laughs> yeah, because our society really pushes, you know, external achievements uh, like um, money and, and career and family. But, you know, the, it's it's your all the studies show that relationships lead to the most fulfillment and that kind of thing, right? Having confidence, having people to talk to about the things that matter. Or a healthy balance. I, I want people to have a mission. So I have a mission, but I also have been married uh, 27 years and, and um, I have a what I hope is a healthy relationship with my wife and I have friends and, and um, 
although I work a lot, I still try to make time um, for my friends and, and my wife. A couple more questions on the divorce breakup topic, because I know it's a hot topic for our guys. Like, I've seen a lot of guys end up in these communities that are sort of women hating or like, ah, screw it. I'm not going to deal with women anymore. Uh, they're known as like in, in the online communities as like red pill and kind of, they're kind of anti-feminists and women are all this way. And a lot of guys actually do get caught up in this, um, this kind of stuff. Um, I have my own thoughts on that stuff, uh, you know, but I'd love to hear from somebody who's qualified, like, you know, what's actually happening when these guys end up in these communities that are basically women hating or on the flip side when, you know, feminine, like the second or third wave feminists are very like anti-men. Well, I think um, what happens when a person uh, is rejected is that's bad. But what's really bad is any kind of self-rejection that uh, a man might do. And so what happens is um, they begin to put themselves down and one uh, way to reclaim their self-esteem is by putting other people down. So if you become a, um, a hater of all women and overgeneralize about all women, well, it's like a seesaw, you know, you put them down and you go up and your ego is starts to feel better. And then of course, if you um, associate birds of a feather flock together. So if you associate with other people that have the same sort of overgeneralized point of view, then you will uh, get that idea affirmed that you're right and women are wrong. Um, and it's, so it's very um, important that people avoid downing themselves when they have uh, lost a, a meaningful relationship to acknowledge that it's over. And um, because here's what happens. If you down yourself, you're going to have an unhealthy negative emotion. Once you're under the influence of an unhealthy negative emotion, you're going to be biased in your processing of reality. And you're going to make statements like, all women are this way. Yes. No. The, the whole the reality is skewed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what you want to do is instead of having an unhealthy anger or an unhealthy uh, depression that you're either downing yourself or down the other party, what would be better is to only put down what the other party did if they cheated on you, only put down what you did if you can, um, if you can see how you contributed to the breakup. So now you're going to have a healthy negative emotion, but that's going to allow you to then have realistic future processing of reality. And you're going to say, well, she did that, but that doesn't mean all women did that will do that or this happened to me in this relationship it doesn't mean it will always happen in every relationship let me take what i can from this experience and then apply it in a healthy way to future relationships yeah that's great i love how you worded that thank you for explaining that and i've also observed that like there's also a lack of self-responsibility by being taken by people that end up down a path like that in one of these communities where um because I've been cheating on a couple of times and the place that I got to with it is, wow, I let this person in my life. I, the flags were there. I chose to continue going down the path with them in the relationship. Like I'm responsible for this just as much as she was ending up in bed with somebody else. Or you're, you're responsible in a different way. Yes. In a different um, way. I wouldn't yeah. say I, just as yeah. much, No, <laughs> um, but I would say I would in a different way. Um, and the thing is this, that, you know, even if you get into a relationship where there aren't red flags, 
there's still always the possibility that that could happen. And so if you're going to, like you said earlier, if you're going to, you know, um, go for the ride, you got to pay the price. Yeah. Buy the and if you let somebody into your life, they could hurt you and you better, you better accept that reality or otherwise, you know, um, be a joyous masturbator and, and be autistic and not really uh, get involved with other people. Which is what a lot of these communities are perpetuating. This, this like, no, we don't need women at all attitude. Um, you don't need them, but you want them in all probability. So I make a distinction between an absolute need for a woman and a healthy desire for one. Healthy desire, yeah. And I've seen in my own life that like when I took that lesson of, wow, I, I'm responsible here too, then that served me in evaluating future potential partners. And I took a pass on individuals that had those same traits. And now I'm in the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, where it's just it just flows and communication is great. The way we move through conflict is great. And so I, I do like talking about this because I want to encourage people to take the responsibility, take, learn the lessons, take responsibility for those situations because it will serve you if you do. I have to tell you, um, I, I, um, I have to be careful. I don't jump on my soapbox here, but yeah, I yeah, think we yeah. live in a time where we tend to externalize uh, responsibility. And I think it's really important that we adopt personal responsibility for our emotional reactions, for the attitudes we choose to hold, and for the behaviors that we choose to display. And I think it's very, um, this idea of, of, of holding ourselves accountable rather than blaming other people or the environment for what's happening. I'm not saying that the environment doesn't contribute to um, our emotional reactions, and I'm not saying that other people don't contribute to our emotional reactions. But at the end of the day, the one person you really can be sure that you can count on is you and your effort. And therefore, if you take responsibility for going back to Epictetus, you can't yes. be a victim of another. You can only be a victim of yourself. I think you're not um, making excuses for other people. What you're doing is acknowledging they contribute to your adversity, but that at the end of the day, you have a bigger contribution to your emotional reaction to the adversity. And that's called the principle of emotional responsibility. Mm. I love that emotional responsibility. That's fantastic. I've angered myself about your infidelity. I depressed myself about, I'm depressing myself about the end of this relationship running the, the course. Um, I'm holding on to, I'm holding, and people hold on to those things too, right? They, they hold yeah. on to them. For, and but they, they don't see that they're perpetuating it. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to teach people is that we anger ourselves, we depress ourselves. Yes, things happen, and you could be sad about that, but if you're going to get uh, dysfunctional, you're largely uh, creating that dysfunctional reaction. Yeah, and on the, on the topic of letting go, we can circle back to this top, topic of acceptance. How do you define acceptance after a breakup and a divorce? And what is that actually, what is that experience like for the individual, for a guy out there who's having trouble letting go? Because I can relate. I've, I'm the guy who has trouble letting go after a relationship's end, whether it be with friendships or even with somebody who even cheated on me. You know, so what is that actually, uh, how would you define acceptance and then boots on the ground? What does that actually feel like for a guy? That's a great question. So acceptance is an acknowledgement that a negative state of affairs exists. So, for example, you acknowledge that your relationship is over or it's run its course, however you want to think of it. 
Uh, it's, so there's an acknowledgement piece, but it's more than that. It's got a philosophical piece to it that for some reason, all the conditions that led to this relationship running its course are in place. Now, we might not know what all those conditions are, but we acknowledge that it should have happened. Why? Because it did. So if something happens, once it's happened, the conditions were in place for it to happen. We may not know what those conditions are. A little bit of your contribution, a little bit of my contribution, a little bit of COVID-19, say, and the contribution uh, social isolation played. But at the end of the day, the conditions were right for it to occur. So now you have a second piece. A third piece is um, a realization that you have the desire that a particular reality not be as it is. And so, for example, you might say, you know, I really wish our relationship hadn't run its course, but it has. And then the final piece is to change anything about that situation if it can be changed or to move on if it can't be. Now, boots on the ground. What does that all look like? And feel and feel like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, we'll feel like it's going to involve healthy negative emotions of sadness where you're acknowledging that you wish the relationship were still in place. Perhaps um, um, a healthy anger or healthy um, sorrow that you have been or healthy disappointment that you have been cheated on. And, And when the other partner could have first came to you and said, look, I'm not happy in this relationship. Either we work something out here or... We end it, but instead it was discovered, and and so you have a healthy anger where you're you don't like the fact that um, you weren't told that the other partner wasn't happy. Um, boots on the ground might involve um, either um, communication around um, changing what can be changed, right? Where you decide to enter into. Uh, Therapy to change something about yourself that your partner may not have liked that you think contributed to the relationship ending or couples therapy where you're trying to get both of the people um, to work on themselves. And I have a unique kind of view of how couples therapy goes. And I could share that with you where in couples therapy, I want both parties to be looking at how they can change something within themselves. It's not uncommon for people to come into therapy, couples therapy, and say, well, you know, our problems are his fault. Yeah. And our problems are her fault. And so what I do is I didn't know. No, it's like, right, let's do it this way. What am I, what can you change about you so that you have healthy negative reactions to her? And what can you change about you so that you have healthy negative reactions to him? And if you both are having healthy negative emotions, now what you're going to do would be, is be in a better position to negotiate and, and figure out how to relate to each other and get more of what you want and less of what you don't want. People who are in an unhealthy emotional state tend not to be good negotiators. They either uh, demand too much, or if they're desperate, they'll give up too much. And so um, that's, that's really how I view healthy relationships, where both parties are taking emotional responsibility and behavioral responsibility for their contribution to the relationship conflict. 
boots on the ground, what does acceptance look like? Well, Especially after if, a breakup, yeah, in this yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, after a breakup. If you're not going to negotiate, um, try to repair the relationship, then it's moving on. And what is it doing? It's moving on with an enlightened self-interest that um, these kinds of things happened, uh, happen, and then you try to um, relate effectively ba- with the wisdom that you derived from that breakup with another partner. Yeah. You know? And so moving boots on the ground means either repair or at, with a healthy negative emotion or moving on to a new relationship um, um, with a healthy negative emotion. Yeah, that's great. And there's one thing you said earlier that I love, and I've heard you say it before in other um, recordings and stuff is um, part of that sexual self-acceptance process, part of the actual breakup recovery, okay, now you've decided to part, you're, you're out of that first emotional ER period of a few weeks or months where it's just like so painful, you, you have trouble functioning. Then it's about living life to enjoy yourself rather, rather than proving yourself. Yeah. And that is self-acceptance. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that's a great uh, way to put it. Um, so the person who created Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy would argue that um, life is an opportunity to um, have a fucking ball. Huh, that's great. Albert Ellis used to say, he created Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, and he trained me, he used to say, um, you know, you can either live your life to prove yourself or you can live your life to enjoy yourself. So you're not living your life for the next life because there's not um, a lot of data that suggests that you're going to have a next life. Uh, it's possible. So he considered himself what was a probabilistic atheist where he would essentially be saying, you know, this is all we have in all probability. So what are we going to do with this? We're, are we going to um, have a great time and max out the pleasure of this opportunity? Or are we going to live this opportunity to prove to other people that we're noble or great? And um, he would argue that's a a waste of time proving to other people that you um, are noble or great. And so what you want to do is, or prove to yourself that you're you're noble. And what he would argue is is that um, you want to have what he would call a long-term hedonistic stance towards life where <laughs> that's great. I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's like money, right? You, you get, you get your money, you get your pay, right? You take a certain portion of it and you invest it, grow it, and you spend the other por- rest of it for today. So you live for both today and tomorrow in terms of your spending of money. Well, the same thing with pleasure, you know, you don't want to have no pleasure in the short run because you may have some meaning with your life, but you'll be, um, you won't, you won't have a lot of fun, but if you live for today, you will have more pain in the long run and less pleasure. And so what we try to do is teach people to have the poise and the, um, uh, discomfort tolerance to regulate their behavior so that they can live for today and for tomorrow and maximize pleasure in all the different areas of their life, whether it be work or relationships or money or exercise. And so what what sometimes happens is people will say, well, I am, and this happens most of the time, I am what I do. And so if I do more, I'll be better. And in that, with that kind of conditional self-esteem, you tend to live your life to prove how much you can get, 
Whereas if you have what we teach in REBT is unconditional self-acceptance, we're saying, look, you have aliveness and you are complex and you're in a state of flux and you can't be rated. What we can rate and evaluate are your actions. And so if you have a goal, say, to go out with a particular woman and or a man and you uh, successfully court them, then you have done well. If you um, have a goal of uh, getting promoted and you get your promotion, you have done well. It doesn't make you a great person, but you have achieved your goal, so the behavior is good. So what we're going to do is try to get people to judge only their behavior. Now, what people will like to do is say, well, if I'm good, then that if I do well, then that makes me a good person. And that's essentially the philosophy of proving yourself. If you say, I, I did well and I want to do well. Why? Because I enjoy doing well and I enjoy the practical consequence of doing well and that maxes my, maximizes my pleasure. And then you're living the philosophy of enjoying yourself, not proving yourself. And I think this is a very liberating idea because then people start not pursuing um, things for the wrong reasons like money or a career for the wrong reasons, they end up doing what pleases them. And that could even relate to like, for example, sexuality. So rather than forcing yourself to be a certain way sexually, you accept yourself and then you unconditionally accept yourself and then you do your sexual life however you choose to do it because that's the way that it works for you and maximizes your pleasure. Oh yeah, I love that. And I've never heard it worded this so well, so I'm just going to repeat it one more time for the listeners. Living life to enjoy yourself rather than proving yourself. And you do that through unconditional, unqualified self-acceptance. You, you set goals and you um, strive to achieve them, but even in the goal selection, it's it's they're selected because you want them, not because your mother, your father, your partner, society, or your neighbor, Instagram. society yeah. wants it. You select yeah. the goals for you and then you pursue them. And if you achieve them, that's great. But we're not going to build a statue saying you're a great man. Hmm. Any last thoughts on breakups, the breakup topic, any encouragement or words or anything else guys should consider doing after, you know, break up a divorce, uh, you know, that kind of well, thing. Well, I think the, 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 the most important thing to do and the, and, the, and the worst thing you could do. So the most important thing you could do is reject yourself, down yourself, and, 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 and deny that you didn't contribute in some way and look for the contribution you made, but without self-rejection. Because when you down yourself, you make yourself feel miserable and you're not going to be able to pick yourself up and move on. And then you may even deny the contribution you made because you can't tolerate the criticism that uh, you're, you're. So self-rejection is is very important not to um, not to rate yourself, not to down yourself, but to acknowledge the contribution you made. The worst thing you could do, if you ask me, would be to engage in substance use to um, soothe your pain. So drinking, drugs, et cetera, um, I think escape, escape is not the thing you want to do. You want to feel the healthy sadness, the healthy. And if you're having a really hard time doing that, then you need either the support of friends 
or a support of a psychotherapist or even I'm not against um, psychiatric medication because there are instances when um, um, a, a psychosocial stressor, like a major um, relationship ending, can um, interact with a biological vulnerability towards uh, depression or, or uh, mania or something like that. And then you have, um, you have two things going on. You have the psychosocial stressor and you have the emergence of a biological problem. Mm. So you may need to um, treat the medical problem and the psychosocial problem. So life is complex. It's not easy. But what I would say, the worst thing you could do is drink your pain away. Why is that the worst thing they could do? Why is that out of all the things they could do? Why is that the worst thing? Not drinking, but like, you know, pouring weed, whatever it might be, your vice might be. But why is that the worst thing you can do in that scenario? Because most guys would tell them, all their buddies are probably telling them, ah, it's fine. Just let's go, let's go hit the bottle. Because it will only compound your problems. Um, what it will do is you'll drink, how, you'll, you'll, you'll either cultivate an unhealthy relationship with the substance so that you become the you become tolerant and then you need increasingly more of it in order to um, achieve the same medicinal effect um, you'll spend a lot of money and of course as you use any substance or misuse it you get um, sloppy in your behavior so you could create other problems such as um, if you drink too much you might get in fights or yeah. um, you might not be able to get to work and your work might suffer so um, that's why um, I think that's the any kind of escapism is not good you, or you want healthy escapes so healthy escapes are, are things like working out um, confiding in friends that are that are reasonably uh, sensible friends um, um, watching movies, listening reading. to music, reading yes. books, yes, nice warm baths, yeah, yeah massage, exactly. yeah, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So you have a good idea. Learn the hard way. <laughs> Had well, to you know, the unhealthy you learn the hard way. Yeah. What I talk about are slow learners. You know, um, so um, yeah. Well, we're all slow learners. This is a question of some people are a little slower than others. But <laughs> what I really, um, what we teach in rational motor behavior therapy is that people are, are fallible humans. They're screwed up humans. All of us, me, you. And the man in the moon. And so what we want to do, we're all on our own uh, path of self-actualization, hopefully. And what I try to do, um, I, I don't push people away from AA and I don't push them into AA. But one of the things I do like are some of the little witty sayings they have. Um, and, and so um, I think that um, I saw once a, uh, this, this uh, statement that said, uh, always make new mistakes. And so what I'm trying to do is uh, be creative in the errors I make and uh, not repeat the ones I've made in the past. That yeah. way uh, I have new adversities to face of my own doing rather than the old ones and just doing the same one and getting more uh, intense with the same mistake. Yeah. And having life hit you harder and harder and harder yeah, trying yeah, to try yeah. and give you the message. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to somebody yesterday and uh, he was in a serious motorcycle accident. Um, and I said, Do you still ride a motorcycle? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, he goes, but safely now. And I said, oh, I, you're a slow learner. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there, there is no safety. And, uh, it was a relative, so I was able to get away with it. Um, <laughs> not, that, you know, but in any event, um, that's what I'm getting. And I think it's important to learn from life and try not to make the same error, make new ones. Yeah. 
And so that's great, Dr. Walter. Thank you. And so circling back to the stoic thing, why, why do you think, uh, why are you such a big fan of stoic philosophy and why does in particular the attitude towards adversity stand out for you as being important for people to, uh, understand? Well, the reason why I like stoic philosophy is, um, because I like philosophy in general. I think that, um, it's good. Philosophy uh, helps us uh, live a meaningful life, um, and 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 cope with the emotion of living life. Um, I'm reading um, a great book now called *A Brief History of Thought* by Luke Ferry, and um, he um, talks about the distinction between religion and philosophy. Um, so both of them are aimed at helping people um, have. Um, 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 tranquility from the fear of death, right? I've heard that. Uh, I've, I've heard it said that uh, Ryan Holiday says that philosophy is the soothing ointment for life. <laughs> yes, but it's the soothing ointment for life where one embraces reason to get yes. the um, uh, soothing um, uh. ointment for life. Whereas um, in religion, it's faith um, and not reason. Right. It's it's humility right. and uh, trust in in the word of another. And so you can embrace whatever works for you. But um, for me, um, being a probabilistic atheist, I tend to uh, think a lot. And I think that um, having a healthy philosophy enables me not to mislive. Because one of the things I want to avoid is is living my life and at the end of life looking back and saying, oh, God. I didn't, I mislived. I didn't know what I wanted. Yeah. I didn't uh, pursue it. Yes. Um, I lived it for other people's goals. Mm-hmm. And now I'm at the end of my life and there's not a damn thing I, I could do about it other than to accept it, which would be the prudent thing to do. Because if you, if you only had an hour to live, you could spend an hour torturing yourself or you can spend an hour to accept that that's the way it goes because you're a fallible human and you kind of missed out. But <laughs> what I'm trying to do is say, to, say all right, what are we going to do? Um, we're going to think, and that's how we're going to solve our problems. And you see, I think thinking is um, what people are, that's our natural capacity. It's not easy for us to think and think well, but um, we want to cultivate that because life is one adversity after another. And so to me, when you, um, I like Stoicism amongst other philosophers because of the fact that it, um, it emphasizes that you're really um, not trapped unless you think you're trapped. Like I go back to that Epictetus quote that um, um, you um, cannot be a victim of another, you can only be a victim of yourself. And so I think that that's a very empowering way of living your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so REBT is an amalgamation of ancient and modern philosophy, and I think it um, is a powerful philosophy in and of itself that emerges from these other philosophies. And so what I did was go back to some of the previous philosophies and study them so I can understand them. Because if you understand, like for example, with computers, right? If you understand, you know, when everybody interacts with Windows, but there's there's actually um, code that's underneath the hood. If you understand that code, you really understand how Windows works. And so that's what I did. I study philosophy because I want to understand how 
um, Albert Ellis um, um, weaved together different ideas and made this thing called rational emotive behavior therapy. So I study stoicism. I'm interested in Buddhism. Um, I listen to this great podcast called Philosophize This. Um, oh, I've heard of that. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. It's a very yeah. great fly. And, and so it starts from the beginning and it's like over a hundred um, episodes. It's very heavy, but I, I listen to it every morning when I'm dealing with my daily 50 minute walk and um i learned a lot of about you know people have explored the idea does god exist and what's the argument for god against god um you know and and how do you live an ethical life yeah and so i i um i i got into stoicism by wanting to learn more about what were the different ways that people um, came to try to solve the problem that we all face, which is how to live a meaningful life, how to uh, have serenity and tranquility, and how to deal with adversity. So I got all these stoic books, The Obstacles, The Way, Stillness is the Key, you know, modern day summaries of the stoic. stoic, stoic yeah, and, and, and Obstacles, The Way suggests that adversity is the path to development and strength and people's natural instinct because of anxiety is to pull back from adversity. And that book is saying, no, lean into adversity. The obstacle yes. is the way, right? Yeah. Now, um, there's a Persian poet named Rumi. And um, in my waiting room, I have a Mac computer that flashes these different stoic quotes and other quotes from other people that, that have wisdom to impart in a sentence. And there's this Persian poet named Rumi. He's a poet slash philosopher. And he this quote would come up and it says, um, the cure for the pain is the pain. The cure for the pain is the pain. And I never really got that, but I, I knew it was a good quote to have. And and it finally dawned on me what the what the guy was saying, you know? It's like, look, if you have pain and you don't want to have pain. Deal with the pain. Go towards the pain. It's just another way it. of saying the obstacle is the way. Go towards um, it. Yeah, the pain. The cure for the pain is the pain. Because look, if 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 you if if you I used to run marathons. I ran thirteen New York City marathons before I got injured. And if you want to deal with the pain of the of hitting the wall, which is the twentieth mile, the best way to deal with that is to hit the wall as many times as you can in training so that you're not blocked, you're not knocked knocked for a loop when your body goes from burning carbohydrates to burning fat as a source yes. of energy. And so the cure for the pain is the pain. If it's pain, what I always tell people, if it's uncomfortable, it's likely to be therapeutic to do. Not always, but often. Hmm. If it's uncomfortable, if it's awkward, if it's painful, it may very well be a sign that it's a good thing to do. To, to, and so what would that look, boots on the ground, what would that look like if you're, if you're feeling anxious to just go sit with it? Well, how about, how about if you're in a relationship, right? Yeah. And you're not happy, you could cheat on your wife or you could tell her that you could do the awkward, uncomfortable thing and let her know that you're not so happy and go and lean into the pain of that discussion and deal with it. The hedonist would probably say, go cheat on your wife. But <laughs> no, short-term hedonist would say, cheat on your wife. Right. The long-term hedonist would say, go through the pain mm -hmm. to, to the other side, which might either be, uh, you know, dissolution of the relationship 
or an enhancement of. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with a job, right? You're not happy at a job. You could do a couple things. You could quit. You could do lousy at work. Or you could inform your, your supervisors that you're not happy with the work they're assigning you and make an argument as to why it's time for you to move on to some other kind of work. So the cure for the pain is the pain. You want to get in shape. The only way to get in shape is to have some modicum of pain on a regular basis. That's how you develop physical fitness. Would you say that pain is a necessary precursor to growth all the time? I would say discomfort is a, a precursor to growth. I don't know if you have to go as far as to say pain. It would depend upon... You see, remember we talked about healthy and unhealthy negative emotions. And so I said to you, like, there's sadness, right? I mean, you don't get what you want, you're going to be sad, right? Yeah. But people have... Picture a ladder. And on that ladder, each rung of the ladder is a, is a value that they hold. And at the top of the ladder is the thing you, you value the most... And at the bottom of the ladder is the things you value the least. Now, if you you want to get everything on that ladder, if you don't get what you want and it's at the low rung of the ladder, it's mild sadness or mild disappointment. If it's at the top of the ladder and you don't get what you want, it is strong sadness, strong disappointment. So... It's not, it's, it, it, you can have strong, healthy, negative feelings. You know, if you get um, uh, medical feedback that you may have a very, you may have cancer and they got to work you up. If even if you are the most REBT guy and say, look, I want to be healthy, but I know that I don't have to be. And I'm going to accept whatever the hand of fate tosses my way and then do whatever I can to address it. Well, between when you're told you may have a bad cancer and the final tests are run and you get the feedback, you're going to have strong concern because you don't want to have a short-lived life. You don't want that cancer. Now, you could also be panicked during that period. But, and, the, and your stance towards illness would be different if you have strong concern, deep concern versus uh, anxiety and deep anxiety. So there's a, so some, so you, your question, let's go back to your question. Is discomfort, is, you said, is pain always a pre, uh, precursor to growth? And I would say, I don't know about pain because if it's a low level value, it may very well not be pain, but it may be discomfort. So yes. I don't know how you can grow without discomfort. I love that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great because look, you know, um, at Benjamin Franklin, who, you know, was influenced by the Stoics, you know, a lot of these good philosophies have overlapping pieces, right? So Benjamin Franklin said, there's no gains without pains. You know, anything worth doing is probably going to require a little stretching. Yeah, yeah. Discomfort. I like that distinction. That's a great word for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Discomfort tolerance is what I encourage people to develop. Because if you have no discomfort tolerance, a lot of good things in life requires a certain amount of action that's uncomfortable, either physically or psychologically, or there's like delay of gratification. And so even the idea that like uncertainty tolerance, that's just a special case of discomfort tolerance. Because, for example, you might say to yourself, well, like, you know, 
I have, I want to start this company, but I'm not sure if it's going to work. Nobody ever says to you in advance of starting a company that you're going to, you know, make it in the marketplace. So what do you got to do? If you have the idea that I need certainty, you're not going to take the calculated risk. If you have, if you say I've done my homework, my market research, I think the, this product actually will work in the marketplace. I want it to work, but I don't have to have a guarantee. Now you're going to have uncertainty tolerance to take the risk, borrow money to start to seed the company. And then you're going to have discomfort tolerance to work your ass off to make the company uh, viable in the marketplace. So, so, so Ellis talked about two fundamental disturbances, ego disturbance and discomfort disturbance. Ego disturbance is where you rate yourself as a failure, weight yourself as a loser, put yourself down. And discomfort disturbance is where you pull back from discomfort and you're a short-term hedonist rather than a, a long-term hedonist. And, and if you look at behavior, now they can interact, these two dis disturbances. Like for example, somebody might be a really bright guy and know he's got discomfort tolerance problems and is not living up to, not achieving in life because he's, he's basically allergic to sweat. Yes. He might put himself down because he's, you know, I know I could be doing better in life, but yeah. I'm just too damn lazy. Yeah. So he's got both those problems interacting there. Going on. Yeah. So we always say first accept yourself with your foible and then unconditionally accept yourself and then address the foible if you want to do better in life. If you want to just keep on making the same error, then don't don't address the foible. That's a great way to think about self-acceptance. Accept the foible first and then... Yes, yes. You, you, I think what you want to do in life is deepen and deepen your self-acceptance because when you're on your deathbed, inevitably because you're a fallible human, you're going to look back and you're going to see failures and you're going to see lost opportunity and you're going to see regret. It's just you can't live life and not have any of that on your yeah. deathbed. But here's the question. Do you... Um, do you fade with self-condemnation and berating yourself for having not did as well as you absolutely should have? Or do you fade with unconditional self-acceptance, smiling that you had the victories you had and, and the defeats you had? So I think this journey of unconditional self-acceptance is one that, that we would be well advised to try to do throughout our lives not you just don't it's not like a one one and done deal constant for me constant yeah that's great i love how you talked about that dr walter yeah one of the things that seneca said was that he pitied the individual who had an easy life who hadn't been tested and um the fact of the matter is is that adversity um, can cultivate a certain amount of poise and wisdom and strength that would never come about unless you had encountered the adversity. And so um, what I think you want to do is recognize, and I've seen this and said this to people, you can bear far more discomfort than you think you can bear. And so it's only by um, facing discomfort that you realize how strong you can be. Um, and then you cultivate the skills that you uh, require to circumvent that or get through that, uh, transcend that adversity 
And then you're off to the next one because really life is just one, a series of adversities, uh, hopefully with a couple of uh, laughs between them and, and some fun in between the adversities. But, you know, when people say, when does it stop happening? It stopped happening. The adversity stop ha stops happening when you take your last breath. Yeah, that's it. And that's so nice. That's such a nice reminder of that Seneca line because I look at people that have had, you know, a lack of adversity and it's easy to envy them. And, and, uh, but looking at my own life and those individual uh, setbacks I've been through, it's like, that's where I learned the most. It's where I took the best lessons. That's where some opportunity presented itself af after without fail. There's some beautiful thing that came out of it, you know? Yeah. And then you also have greater empathy for other people. You really take yourself mm -hmm off the pedestal and you can understand you're less judgmental of people as people. There's one term I'd like to ask you about quickly, and that is self-actualization. That term has been really um, useful for me now, but it took me a little while to understand what it is, what it means, why it's, why is it something you'd like to pursue? Why is it important that men um, try to become more self-actualized? Well, First of all, when you self-actualize, the one thing you want to avoid is rating yourself, right? So you're developing your characteristics, your traits, your strengths, and minimizing your weaknesses as a way of enjoying yourself. So you're um, actualizing your potential, not to prove yourself, but to enjoy yourself. Because as you um, get good at being you you then probably experience practical rewards. And so as you be, if you have a, say, for example, um, a desire to achieve professionally and you're afraid of public speaking, well, then self-actualization would involve public speaking and getting better and better at it to the point where you then get rewarded for doing the thing that you used to uh, dread. Um, and it doesn't make you a great person, but then you get certain rewards for that. So self-actualization is just taking the bits and pieces of you and taking certain bits and pieces and cultivating them because you want to maximize those traits or characteristics or behaviors and minimize other traits, um, characteristics and behaviors. You can't perfect yourself, but you can, you see, Self-actualization in and of itself is a bit of a problem for me because it suggests that you're rating the whole thing. And what I'm yeah. arguing is you can't rate the whole thing. What you can rate are bits and pieces. So when I think of a person, what I think of is, is like um, a mirror that was thrown on the ground and broke into or a puzzle. That might even be better. Even better. You know, 5,000 piece puzzle. Where you throw it on the carpet and there are all these pieces and that's a person. And, and then to make it even better, those pieces are moving around. So they're, in, they're growing bigger, they're growing smaller, and that whole mess is kind of in flux. That's a person. And what you're going to do in, with actualization is pick a few pieces that are particularly appealing or particularly problematic and work with those pieces so that they don't undermine your uh, pursuit of pleasure. That's fantastic. I'm a hedonist, pure, pure and simple. I yeah, want to I maximize. It. This is, you got one life, right? You want to take calculated risks. You want, not foolhardy risks, calculated risks. You want to unconditionally accept yourself and other people and unconditionally accept life that, look, you know, life has a lot of uncertainty. It's, it's an art, not a science. You want to use logic to, to help you figure out what 
calculated risks you're going to take. But at the end of the day, you know, life is a blink of an eye and you're a grain of sand. And so if you, what are you going to do with that blink of an eye and that grain of sand? For me, I'm not going to live it for the next life. That's for sure. No, you're going to try to feel as good as you can during this life. Right. You know, but that may not that mean just, feeling good today. It might no. mean working my ass off today because I, I am working towards a goal. Yeah, picking up some of those broken or dirty pieces and like polishing them off, taking feeling comfortable and take some time. And but the goal is because you you'll see that later on it'll make you a more happy, healthy, whole human being. Yeah, and 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 I just want to do this uh, because I'm I have a um, I'm self actualizing or trying to uh, disseminate um, and help people because I enjoy. That's my mission. I think people need a mission. Yes. I really do. And if not one mission, maybe a couple. And, or maybe you, when you achieve a mission, then you replace it. But I've seen, like, for example, I've worked with a lot of men who have retired and have gotten depressed. And I really don't ever um, intend to retire. What I intend to do maybe is work less and travel more because I really like traveling uh, yes. to other countries. Great. But the point being is that um, I think um, one of my missions is to disseminate and help people because I like it. I became a psychologist because I like talking to a guy like you about this thing that we're talking about or these Same. ideas that we're talking yeah. about, right? I love this, yeah. And, and, um, and so um, one of my missions is to disseminate this philosophy. And so every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. in the, well, at this time of the year, which is the winter, at 2 p.m. in the UK, 5 in Moscow, and uh, 7.30 in India, I have what I call the Rational Emotive Behavioral Conversation Hour, where I spend an hour, uh, 40 minutes doing, having a conversation with a man or a woman about a real problem. And then after uh, that 40 minutes of talking to them about the ideas that I just talked to you with, but applied, customized for their problem, I then take questions and from the viewing audience. So usually about 100 people show up and they'll Great. ask questions about about this. And it's it, I started it during the pandemic about um, 70 weeks or so ago. And awesome. we've been going strong. So go to um, rebtdoctor.com. That's my website. And you could uh, there's a lot of also audio and video there that's free for the uh, taking um, and explaining these ideas because um, it, it, giving it away is uh, part of the fun. So it's R-E-B-T, the letters R-E-B-T, and then the word doctor.com. And you can go there and learn all about this, the Rational Motor Behavioral Conversation Hour and, all, and take advantage of all the uh, free material that's there. Yeah, and I'll have that, a link to that in the show notes for anybody who's watching or listening. La, very last question. A lot of guys coming into men's group, they're, they're um, you know, visiting our website, reading our blog, they're joining our email list or joining the community, getting into men's groups. They, a lot of them, well, I'd say maybe half of them haven't been to therapy before and, and they're, they're, just, they're just wading into personal development for the first time. So could you explain therapy and how does it empower them to cope and and ultimately get more pleasure out of life thank you thank you for ask asking this question because i have to tell you i'm concerned uh, you uh, the the barrier for doing therapy is a, there are low barriers to entry mm -hmm. so it's a little bit like the wild west um it's really important i think that you do your homework and find out from the person you're working with what you can expect 
And so one of the reasons why I think I'm so successful is that people look at my website and they see how transparent I am. This is what I'm going to do with you. Mm. I'm not trying to be all things to all people. If you want a, um, a spiritually based approach, I'm not the guy for you. <laughs> if you want um, um, a no nonsense, problem focused approach that acknowledges your feelings, but more or less advocates a tough-minded stance towards reality, one based in, in realism and acceptance. Now, they're not antithetical. Feelings, healthy negative feelings, and a tough-minded approach are not antithetical. There's yeah. real things to be sad about. There's nothing wrong with crying. But at the end of the day, you either see yourself as a victim or you change what you can change and accept what you can. And so... I think that what you want to do when you wade into therapy is not assume that what you see on TV is therapy. Not assume that therapy is just talk, 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 same time next week. Hmm. And recognize that psychotherapy can be more like education. I actually see what I do as adult education. I take a person, I talk to them about their life problems, whether or not there's a psychiatric component, because even if you have a psychiatric component, that psychiatric problem contributes to life problems. And I always tell people, don't become your, your diagnosis. Don't say, I'm a bipolar. Mm -hmm. No, you're a person who, who has a biology that seems to kind of get revved up and needs to sometimes be helped and you do better when you take lithium than or you take one of the other mood stabilizers and there's no shame in that because it's a medical problem now once you've treated that medical problem you still have neurotic problems superimposed upon it because you're a person and so one of the things i try to tell people is that psychotherapy if you ask me should be a process where a person actively teaches you ideas and skills for coping with life. Ideas and skills for coping with life. It doesn't mean it has to be taught every week. It, so a lot of times I'll see people for two, two or three sessions and then we'll go to like every other week because I want to give you some skills and I want you to go home and practice these skills. So I'll give people this companion guide that they can take home and begin to learn some of the skills. And what I'm trying to do is teach people how to identify when they start angering themselves and then teach them how to move toward, transform that into a healthy negative emotion so they can act in a self-helping way. Now, some people think therapy is just talking about the past. Well, let's assume you did have a problem in the past that impacts you in the present. I'll talk to you about the past. But I'll talk to you about the past in a different way. I'm not just going to try to find out who did what, when. I'm going to try to find out how you think presently about that past problem. Because the attitude you have today about what happened 10 years ago can either re-traumatize you and keep you stalled in life. Or the attitude you have today about that event that happened 10 years ago can actually um, contribute to post-traumatic uh, growth. And so how you think impacts how you feel. And we think about the past, and we also think about the present and the future. And so cognitive therapies 
are therapies that teach people how to think about life and develop skills so that they can cope better. Not perfectly. You never, there are no utopias. Now, there are different kinds of cognitive therapies. And I've worked with the cognitive therapist, uh, a guy named uh, Aaron Beck, who developed what's called Beck's Cognitive Therapy. And then I've worked with Albert Ellis, who developed Rationally Emotive Behavior Therapy. I tilt towards the REBT because it's more philosophical. But these therapies are trying to empower people by saying, look, think about how important your thoughts are. And so I think when a man goes to therapy, he can't assume it's just going to be, you know, like giving you a sweater where you're a comfortable, safe place. Yeah, what people tell me, they're going to, it's going to be held in confidence. And maybe you're going to tell me stuff that you might not tell somebody else because that's just good judgment. But at the end of the day, I'm going to try to not just listen, but then teach you skills. And I think you want to find a therapist. I think before you go to a therapist, you really should find out. And most therapists won't answer you with a straight answer. They'll tell you, well, I'm integrative. I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And to me, they're really not answering your question. If somebody says to you, what do you do? I say, I'll tell you what I do. I practice rational motor behavior therapy. And the premise of that is that how you think impacts how you feel. And I'm going to teach you a set of ideas. And I'm going to teach you a, a skill for self-correcting. And then I'm going to want you to do self-therapy the rest of your life. So therapy doesn't have to last forever. It's an educational experience. It's more like tutoring. I'm going to tutor you on skills and then set you free. So that's what I'm going to do. Are you interested? Well, can that help me with this problem? Well, yes, it can. And let me quickly show you how it would. Yeah, that's great. I've seen tremendous benefits from therapy and I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on it. And it is why I am where I am today. It's one of the major drivers of my self-actualization is having somebody skilled like you to bounce different situations I run into. Um, and help you look at difficult aspects of you without putting you down, mm. but, but really looking at that awkward, uncomfortable behavior and then teaching you skills how to rein in that behavior. Yeah, that's great. Fantastic. That's what I'm going to do with people. And that's what I think good therapy is about. I think just having people come in and vent, 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 week after week after week, um, it's like, to me, that's a waste of time. Yeah, I think so too. I've done that and it is a waste of time. Just spinning your wheels feels like, you know. And that's what most people think therapy is. And I think that's why men don't like therapy because a lot of times yeah. they'll say, this is bullshit. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just giving you money to come in here and complain. And what yeah. I'm going to say to you, no, I'm going to teach you how not to whine about the difficulties of life. You could acknowledge them. That's not whining. Whining is acknowledging the difficulties of life and then not doing what you can do to make things better, whether that be yeah. changing something within you or changing something within you and outside of you. That's yeah, 100%. Yeah. Taking responsibility. When you, don't, when you blame somebody else for something that's underneath, that's within your domain of uh, influence, to me, that's another way of defining uh, emotional disturbance. It's yeah. emotional uh, health is taking responsibility for what's yours and not taking responsibility for what isn't yours, which I is consistent that. with stoicism. Yeah, I love that. That's, that sounds like stoicism. That's fantastic. I love it all circles back to that. And Whereabouts are you based, Dr. Walter? I'm in, I'm in uh, Center City, Philadelphia at, oh, at yeah. 16th and Walnut. Cool. But now with, with the internet, I have uh, clients throughout the world. I even have one in Australia, 
I've, um, 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 uh, Europe, throughout Europe, um, Canada. So um, the internet, and, and, you know, it's nice to see people in the office, but I think also it's great to be, where are you, Sean? I'm in Canada. I'm in, I'm in a little town outside Vancouver. Well, there you go. So, I mean, the internet is just, to me, the business is moving to the internet because, um, you know, why should you spend $40 uh, driving in, 40 minutes driving into the city and spending $25 on parking when you could do it this way? Yeah. Um, you know, if for me, it's been or, the same. I used to do a lot in person. Now I do it all via Zoom for the most part. Same, same. Yeah. And with 5G technology, it's only going to uh, increase yeah. as, as, as the technology gets better. I mean, look at the connectivity that we have. It's pretty good, right? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Especially tools like You think you're Islanders. around the corner and yet you're, you're yeah, exactly. quite some ways. Well, Dr. Walter, I, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks for taking the time to share the wisdom and to help these guys through men's group. And also, I love the of a sense of humor about this stuff. It's so nice. Like, we try to inject that into our community as well. That's a value of mine is like having a laugh where we can, even through well, the even through Well, the again, stuff. another de- another definition of disturbance is taking yourself, life, and others too seriously yeah. or not seriously enough, right? Huh. Either extreme is problematic. Yes, we got to avoid so, the extremes, and I think we did a good job of that here today. And so. I laugh with my, I laugh with people all the time. I mean, why not? It's it's really what we're trying to do is poke fun at some stupid ideas that we all tend to hold and use to trip ourselves up. One of which is taking yourself too damn seriously. Yeah, and no, I've actually had some of the biggest, darkest, most uh, healing laughs have come around the issues that are most sensitive to me. You know, so and I think that can be quite a healing thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. Oh, it's been so great, Dr. Walter. I appreciate your attitude. Sounds like you're doing some wonderful things to really help people, men in particular. You know, men and boys are like the forgotten, um, particularly young men. I mean, if you, they're very young, young boys and young men are, are fragile. They yeah. look tough on the outside, but they're more like uh, eggs, you know, they crack. And, and then when they crack, there's stuff all over the place. And so I think the work you're doing to try to um, normalize um, introspection, mm-hmm. norm- normalize, it's just education. That's what we're doing. Yes, we're just doing education it. around a topic that's kind of like private or sensitive. And, yeah, exactly. Um, thinking about our thinking. But everybody needs, in my view, if they want to live a healthy and happy life, to think about their thinking so that they don't mislive. Mislive, yeah, exactly. I love it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Dr. Walter. So let's talk again soon. All right. Take care.